Episode 388, No Man in Eden by H.L. Mira. Is it worth reading? Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. Strangers and aliens. I am your father's best friend, Plumber. Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did was that he created something, so we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens Podcast. Hello, it's me, Ben. Ben Avery, and this is Strangers and Aliens. Strangers and Aliens is a podcast and a video series about the intersection of faith and fantasy, sci-fi, and Christianity. And I've been doing some videos uh, that I've been calling, Is It Worth Reading? Where I've been asking the question, is it is it worth reading? And so as I've been doing this, uh, the first three ones that I did were the Space Trilogy, and then I threw in the Dark Tower there as part of C.S. Lewis's uh, Ransom series. And one of the things that I was wanting to do with this is just explore Christian science fiction and just ask that question, because I know there's not a lot out there, and I also know a lot of people complain about how bad Christian literature is, how bad Christian science fiction is, how bad Christian movies and comic books are. And while there is some truth to some of that, I know that there's also some good stuff out there. And so usually if I do this uh, video and I ask the question, is it worth reading? More than likely, I don't think I'm going to be able to bring myself to do a video about a book that's not worth reading. So... This episode, however, will be a little bit longer than normal, longer than the other ones that I've done anyway, because this episode is also going to double as an audio podcast episode. And so this will be released on the Strangers and Aliens podcast feed and will also be released here on the, the YouTube channel and, and Facebook video or whatever it might be. And so you can go and go to strangersandaliens.com. That's where you can find just hundreds of episodes about science fiction and pop culture and Christianity related topics. And you can also, if you're listening to the podcast right now, uh, head over to YouTube. You can see some of the videos we've been doing. There's not a lot there. There's some that are pretty old that we did some series like uh, I did an Advent series for Christmas one year. And then there's some stuff that we, we've done that is a little bit newer, like what you're listening to right now. But this one has a little bit of a backstory as well, because this one goes back to the idea that I had where I was wanting to find more Christian science fiction. I was driving in my car, driving to camp. It was a long road trip. I was by myself because uh, this camp is a camp that we go to every year. The whole family goes. And in, able, in order for me to be able to go to camp, I have to make arrangements with my my work schedule and so I go back home on the weekend so I'm at a camp during the week and I go back home do a day in the office and then I'm in church on Sunday morning doing my children's pastor thing and so when I was driving 
home, I stopped at a used bookstore and that used bookstore had some really neat sci-fi books. I actually just bought a couple random sci-fi books that just look kind of interesting because I've also just been wanting to uh, explore science fiction that isn't like classic science fiction, that isn't like you must read the science fiction, but I've been wanting to read just some like just an old science fiction book and just see what it is. And, and, you know, it's not one of the ones that's going to be in all the collections. It's not ones that'll be on all the lists. It's just going to be this random thing. I found a couple judged the book by its cover and it was neat. But then it got me thinking again, well, where is the other like Christian science fiction? Now I know there's a lot of newer Christian science fiction, especially as you get into the eighties and then the nineties and today, but earlier stuff, especially around the time of C.S. Lewis. That's what I've been curious about. It's like finding Christian science fiction from back then. And I'm not aware of much contemporary Christian science fiction to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I know that there's some stuff, especially like um, uh, G.K. Chesterton and Charles Williams and, and people who flirt with especially the like the that hideous strength style of science fantasy um, or H.P. Lovecraft science horror. Uh, but there's not a lot. And I haven't I, I'm just I'm not finding a lot. And I, I haven't done too many deep dives on the Internet yet. But the shallow dives that I've done, I, I haven't found much. So that got me thinking about it. I also then when I was driving back to camp after the weekend, I was listening to Out of the Silent Planet. And as I was listening to Out of the Silent Planet, my mind turned in that direction again, and I was just thinking about that. Well, what's interesting is two days later, I was at camp. And while I was there, I was in the room where I'm doing my teaching, and and I'm teaching teens and young adults, and it was a really fun series that I did about Peter and, and Jesus, and I really enjoyed doing it. I'm waiting though, I'm sitting there. I don't have a lot of preparation to do because I've already done a week of this camp. And each week after that is just the same material for a different group of people. So I didn't have to like get my slides ready or anything. And I'm just sitting there and there's a bookshelf right there just to the side of the staging area where I'm gonna be doing my my teaching. And this bookshelf had a sign on it that says free books. And this this campground, this retreat center has a a library that's attached to the laundry room. And so these were free books that they were getting rid of. And there was a Louis L'Amour book that I got that I was like, I haven't read anything by Louis L'Amour and I keep thinking about doing it. And this was a one-off book instead of like part of a giant series. Oh, that's cool. And then as I'm looking through it, and keep in mind, I've looked through these books the previous week and I looked through these books the previous summer. (laughs) These books were there the previous summer. Now, I don't know if what I'm about to show you was there this the previous summer, but I don't remember there being too many new things there. I think they just uh, went through, purged the books they wanted to get rid of, put them on this shelf, and then just kind of forgot about it because it seemed like mostly the same thing. And the year before, I found a couple books, a devotional book that was pretty interesting looking about Christmas. And then there was also a book about the Ark of the Covenant and the search for the Ark of the Covenant, which I haven't gotten around to reading yet, but I thought that's kind of interesting. And then there was this book right here. This book is called No Man in Eden. No Man in Eden. And as I was looking through it, there was also, I'm, I'm looking for Bible study books as well. I'm not just looking for, you know, the, the things that interest me on the science fiction side, but I saw this No Man in Eden. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is one of two things. This is either a Christian romance book, or it's uh, some sort of theological book about uh, the Genesis account about the fall of man, about the uh, creation. And so 
It's published by Word, which is a known uh, Christian book publisher and music publisher. That's actually where I knew Word from before I knew that they were a book publisher was I had different cassette tapes and stuff that were uh, from Word. And it's one of those things where I'm like, well, I wonder what it is. And this is what it looks like. There is no, no dust jacket on this hardcover. And so I pick it up. And as I open it up, I look in the copyright page where it's copyright 1969 and all rights reserved. I thought the first thing I noticed that was kind of interesting is that there were scripture quotations from living Psalms and Proverbs, which is, I think, one of the early editions of the living Bible paraphrase. Now, more recently, they've done, when I say recently, I'm probably talking two decades now, but more recently, they've done a living translation. But I do remember hearing about early stories uh, when I was researching the Book of God, the graphic novel that I wrote about the history of the Bible, uh, when I was researching that, I remember coming across some of the, the um, early origins of the living translation and the living paraphrase and how uh, the guy who was working on it, uh, I think his name's Kenneth Taylor, based on what I'm reading right here, not because of <laughs> it's coming off the top of my head, but uh, he was just you know doing his commute in Chicago and needed something to do. And one of the things he thought about doing was just taking scriptures and paraphrasing it into uh, readable and understandable language. Now, he wasn't doing a translation. He was just taking scripture that had already been translated and, and turning it into that readable English, contemporary English of the, the 60s and 70s. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting that the scripture quotations here are from Living Psalms and Proverbs. Okay. But then the bottom part of the page here, it says, the author acknowledges his debt to many writers and speakers, among them C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Ray Bradbury, Malcolm Cronk, and Jay Kessler. So, so now I know this is probably not a Christian romance, okay? I'm still thinking along the lines that this is going to be some sort of book about the creation account, which is still very interesting to me. Now, the Christian romance, I probably would have put it back. But if this is about Genesis, this might still be an interesting book to me. I'm still curious. I'm still going to keep exploring. C.S. Lewis being an inspiration, that's that's not a surprise. I mean, I can totally see that. Mo many, if not all, Christian writers, one way or another, have read C.S. Lewis and are probably indebted to him one way or another. J.R.R. Tolkien, same kind of thing. I mean, the, some of his writings he does, uh, essay writing that he, he did, I could see that being something you could very easily use in interpreting and exploring the Genesis account. But then Ray Bradbury, his name is right there. I'm just, wait, what? Why, why would Ray Bradbury be mentioned here? And then Malcolm Cronk. I don't know who that guy is. Okay. Malcolm Cronk, no, no idea. Jay Kessler, however, I believe is a, um, well, I shouldn't say I believe. I, I'm, I know that there is a Jay Kessler who is involved in higher education here in, in Indiana and that he was, I believe he was at uh, Taylor University and did some other things like that. But I think that that's probably the same Jay Kessler. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, not a surprise name, but that Ray Bradbury name is really what did it for me. I'm just thinking to myself, what, what am I getting into here? Then there is this verse page where uh, we're, we're not even to the title page. Well, I guess we're past the title page and the copyright page, but the verse is from Isaiah 40, 26, and it's look up into the heavens who created all these stars as a shepherd leads his sheep calling each by its pet name and counts them to see that none are lost or strayed. So God does with stars and planets. Isaiah 40, 26, living Psalms and Proverbs, 
which makes me really curious about this edition, the Living Psalms and Proverbs book. It had Isaiah in it, and there's some other verses later on in the book that uh, aren't from Psalms and Proverbs, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious about the scope of of that. But uh, I actually love the love the visual language being used here, and just this idea of of God as as shepherd, even to the planets and the stars. Just really neat. Okay, so you've got my attention, and then. The introduction is beyond space opera. <laughs> I'm just thinking, wait a minute, okay, there's something going on here. Now I'm wondering, am I looking at a book that may be about pop culture? I don't know. Um, his introduction, I'm going to read parts of it here, but his introduction says, if frivolous Buck Rogers space operas kill your desire to read novels of life beyond our world, open your mind for reevaluation. Although some such writing represents the very dregs of verbiage, there are many serious and fascinating works to stretch the mind. Professor Fred Hoyle, in his introduction to Time Magazine's edition of the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury, says the potentiality for the highest form of writing lies in science fiction. And then he goes on, uh, not Hoyle, but um, our, our writer, Mira. He says, unfortunately, with a few ex exceptions, such as C.S. Lewis's work, modern science fiction writers, both good and bad, depict a universe in which God is irrelevant if existent. A science fiction buff generally reads of a mechanistic, many-peopled universe, devoid of any relevance whatever to Christ. Yet of all people, who should exalt most in stretching minds beyond the speck of cosmos called Earth? Should it not be those who place credence in Daniel's and Ezekiel's and Isaiah's visions and in Christ's many comments about other worlds. And yeah, so he goes on and just, just talking about, you know, we have a creative God, we should be creative, we should be thinking beyond, uh, beyond the human. Uh, he says, the Bible has already pioneered this thinking beyond human range. Philippians, Ephesians, the Revelation, the Gospel of John have exhilarating passages about God's full creation beyond our senses. The author of this volume in no way wishes to present factual answers on flying saucers in a land beyond the quasars. His purpose is to stretch the mind about God, his universe, his working. God gives humans imaginations plus biblical glimpses beyond our tortured earth. How delightful to peer into imaginary worlds we might be walking in a few years hence. And then begins a novel. A novel about music journalist David Kohler. And I start reading. And as I start reading, I find that, and this is where I'm going to kind of get into the review. That's the, that's the background to how I discovered this book. And that's the background to why I'm so interested in this book. But I start reading this book and I read the whole thing because it was, well, is it worth reading? Yes, we'll get to how I qualify that yes later, but I really enjoyed myself reading this book. And I will say this, he his debt to Lewis and Tolkien and Bradbury were very evident. I don't know about this Kronk guy. I don't know his debt to him. I don't know his debt to Jay Kessler, but his debt to those three writers was very evident. I mean, the Tolkien side of the things um, is not as evident, uh, but there is a couple moments where the the main character is mentioned to be reading J.R. Tolkien. There's a there's a moment where he just needed a rest because of some things that were going on between him and his wife, and he sits down and just reads the the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He just sits down to read it, you know. 
the 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 debt to uh, Ray Bradbury, I might not have noticed if it hadn't been mentioned. But since it was mentioned, it meant that I was looking for it. And so the thing that I did notice was just the interaction between the aliens in this book and the humans. That's right. This is a book about alien visitation. This is a book about alien abduction. This is a book about a man who is taken to another world. This is a book about a man who's taken to another world that is not affected by sin. And this is a book about a man who, when he travels back, passes through a region that is basically hell. Okay. And then when he gets back to earth, he is part of this conflict, this kind of uh, earthy, but not quite mundane conflict. And I'll, I'll talk more about the Lewis debt that he owes, because all that stuff that I just said is all stuff that was just in my mind as I'm reading this. I'm like, this is very Lewis, very much like Lewis. But the debt to Bray Bradbury that I think I saw was just the interaction between the aliens and the humans. And it really reminded me of the interaction between the aliens and humans in, in Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, uh, which I have a book with not a great cover here because this is four novels by Ray Bradbury. Um, so it's just there. But I do have this DVD that has a great cover. Uh, I don't think that the DVD, that the movie is as great as the cover promises, but this is one of those cool DVD covers that's actually, uh, it flips. And so you can use like the modern photo cover that would have been on the shelf but I flipped it over for the um, the contemporary poster cover that would have been, you know, used in advertising and things like that in the time. This would probably shown up in TV Guide. But anyway, the way that the Martians communicate with humans and the way that Ray Bradbury gets around the problem that every science fiction writer has and that you have to figure something out. Either the aliens learn English, the humans learn the alien language, or there's going to be some sort of universal translator, like on Star Trek, or telepathy. And, and the alien and human interaction in this book really did remind me of some of the alien and human interaction in the Martian Chronicles, which Martian Chronicles, is it worth reading? Yes. Is it a Christian sci-fi book? No, it's not. But there is some very, very interesting stories in there and very thought-provoking stories. And I would definitely recommend the Martian Chronicles. The debt to C.S. Lewis is a little more... <laughs> obvious, uh, especially once you start reading, and especially if you have the Space Trilogy uh, fresh fresh in your mind. In No Man in Eden, you have, the book starts out just very uh, mundane situation. It's just the home life of a newlywed couple, and he's, you know, doing his writing, and she's talking with him, and, and she goes and visits her mom and talks with her mom, and he goes to work and talks with people at work, and it's just that kind of, well, it's that kind of fairy tale beginning that you get in that hideous strength where C.S. Lewis specifically started right in that mundane, regular life thing, because that's what fairy tales do, and so that reminded me of that hideous strength, and then you have... You have your guy, your unlikely hero who is taken to another world against his will, almost accidentally, like out of the silent planet or or like Paralandra, where he he just gets taken to this other world and he finds himself this kind of unlikely um, sojourner in the stars. And while he is taken away from our world, he's taken to an unfallen world like, well, 
both out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra. And as he goes to these uh, this unfallen world, he gets to explore what does Utopia look like. And then when he comes back to Earth, he has to deal with corrupt human organizations. Now, in that hideous strength, the corruption came from academia and came from science and scientists. And in No Man in Eden, <laughs> it's uh, it's rock and roll. Okay, it's it's rock and roll. Rock and roll is the evil. Now, he does not portray rock and roll as solely evil. In fact, what he does portray is that music has power and the people, the bad guys, so to speak, in here are using that rock and roll um, power to, to just present a message to the world. But there's also going to be some other bad things going on, bad things happening. And the bad stuff, the bad things are not quite as extreme as in that hideous strength as far as like the experiments that they were doing. But, but it is there. And so it's almost like... It's almost like uh, Mira was taking the Space Trilogy and just like wishing it together and saying, I just read this and now I want to do it. I'm going to do this space trilogy, but I'm going to do it in the 70s. And I'm also going to take the great divorce and I'm going to use some of that too. And I'm going to squeeze that in. And when I squeeze it in, I'm going to have my book. And the great divorce stuff is actually um, when he goes and visits hell. That really reminded me of some of the imagery, not the exact imagery, but the style of imagery that you'd find in the great divorce and so you have no man in eden now i i want to make sure that i'm clear i am not accusing him of plagiarism i'm not accusing him of copying this is homage this is it's influenced by c.s lewis but this is really him kind of taking this, this the things that c.s lewis did in C.S. Lewis's world and in C.S. Lewis's time and in C.S. Lewis's circles and doing that same thing here, doing a science fiction book, taking his world, his circles, his time and making a story about really about the, the late 60s. And um, so even with all those echoes, uh, the other thing, though, I will mention <laughs> is that uh, they reprinted this book in the 80s and they changed the title from No Man in Eden to escape from the twisted planet which escape from the twisted planet doesn't that just sound like it could be a part of the series with out of the silent planet and the tortured planet out of the silent planet the tortured planet escape from the twisted planet uh, now the tortured planet is that hideous strength but it's the um abridged version of that hideous strength that c.s lewis himself did the abridgment for uh but to do a, a smaller book a shorter book um yeah, but anyway, that, that retitling uh, to Escape from the Twisted Planet, which really kind of fits, but he wasn't escaping the Twisted Planet. He was abducted from, accidentally, the Twisted Planet. Um, so yeah, it definitely had, owes a huge debt to C.S. Lewis. I do too. I mean, let's face it, some of the stuff that I've written, I, I owe a huge debt to C.S. Lewis for sure. One of the things that does allow it to break beyond that influence and break beyond the, um, yeah, just the homage is that this is of its time. And some of the things that are in this book that make it definitely of its time and that make it in some ways, uh, is it worth reading? Yes, as homework, it's worth reading. Uh, and that is, you know, there's UFOs and there's UFO abductions. And it even mentions like the article in Look Magazine about UFOs and 
there's uh, the aliens feel like it is, you know, pre-Star Wars, definitely. It's pre-Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The aliens are not gray aliens. They're, they're gold aliens. And between the UFOs, the abductions, and all that kind of thing feels like something that comes from the 60s. There's also a lot, a lot of stuff in here about race relations. And I will say the good thing is the things that he's trying to say about race relations definitely come from the idea of all men are human, all men are brothers, all men are equal. And it, unfortunately, though, uses language that is outdated and language that would be uh, avoided even if it was trying to make the point about how this language is not okay. It is the kind of thing that would cause a, a modern reader to be, oh, I can't believe I just read that. And there's a couple of times in this book when that happened. Um, again, another thing that makes it of the time, rock and roll. <laughs> another thing that makes it of the time is as he's talking about the sinful nature of current events he's talking about the wars that were happening at the time and other things <laughs> include just talking about television and you know making mention of a black and white television and how he actually i think uses if i remember correctly uh the analogy but he uses the difference between a black and white television and a color television to uh, illustrate the difference of the clarity of, of something else and so that's something that you probably wouldn't read in a modern novel because a lot of people just have no experience with black and white TVs. I mean, a lot of us do have experience with that. I remember we had the color TV in our living room. We had the black and white TV in our kitchen. And that black and white TV is what I would take upstairs so I could watch late night television and watch Saturday Night Live when my, my parents didn't know that I was staying up so late. But I could just sneak that little 10-inch television upstairs and watch Saturday Night Live. So, yeah. So all those things create the whole no man and eden and i would say again just there's nothing new under the sun and what he's doing is he's taking these things these influences these ideas and then he's creating his own spin on it it's homage it's influence and there's also interesting ideas okay but what's interesting to me what's most interesting is what i was looking for now this is not contemporary with c.s lewis but it's definitely doing the thing that c.s lewis was doing you know it's doing that science fiction social commentary with with a science fiction theological commentary and, and there's some futurism in here and and then there's science in here and scientific ideas and so like there's um he's talking about light speed and going faster than light he's in the ufo and he's kind of looking through a window out from uh, back where what he's leaving uh then as he was keeping earth's star the sun clearly in view one evening it happened like a flickering bulb dying it simply fizzled out then blackness nothing he did on the equipment would bring it back he calculated the distance away at that point to be roughly seven billion light years had the solar system begun then had he outraced its earliest light had he watched its birth like a film running backwards. And I really, I hadn't uh, read a description like that in a science fiction book about someone going faster than light and actually outrunning the light that would have been coming from, uh, from the source, uh, especially like as he's leaving, leaving the sun behind him. Uh, there's something that definitely feels like it is from <laughs> the sixties or seventies where he is, um, the main character, David, is, is talking with some friends about how he's, he's changed, he's different now, and uh, he's had these experiences, and 
he's like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And Wilson nervously interrupted with, you probably wouldn't quite believe his hippie ideas either. Like, just love everybody. The Klansman who hangs you, the mugger who knifes you, just everybody. Did the, did the flying saucers tell you that? Carlisle abruptly demanded of David, his piercing eyes and malevolent smile lighting his face. David started and paused a moment. No, as a matter of fact, he said at last, a man from outer space did. Oh, Carlisle's eyes lighted just a fraction more and the others looked at David, wondering if this was merely a word game or if he was really serious. What did he say? Carlisle probed. That we're all doomed. The girl with Carlisle gave a nervous laugh as if she wasn't quite catching on to the joke, but should be laughing just then. Doomed to be blown to bits, she asked, smiling coyly. Something like that, but we have a chance if we accept all this man tells us and obey him, we won't be destroyed. And what does he tell us to do? The girl asked. Get to know him, open our wills to him. She shuddered. But what does he plan to do to us? If he controls our wills, he could make us do anything. Precisely, David rejoined. He'd enable us to live without fear or prejudice. If we gave our wills to his power, we'd discipline ourselves. Use sex the way it was intended. Treat our bodies. A voice from the side floated in sharply. Sounds terribly restrictive. It came from a well-known big sound artist who walked up, clothed in brilliant red, green, and black. A petite blonde snuggled up beside him. Bound to lead to unhappiness, he added, grinning and looking down at the girl. The opposite, I assure you, David declared. Wilson cut in with the introductions, then explained, Kohler here is taunting us with a riddle. Sounds like a moralist for a moment there, the singer commented. The relics, so to speak, he added, glancing at Clint Edwards, who had just joined him. Carlyle stared at them all, moving toward the ballroom where most of the other guests had already assembled, but he never took his gaze from David's eyes. Tell me, he asked, who was this spaceman's reception committee? Were you there? David returned his gaze. No, not too long after his arrival, he was murdered. Well, the girl smiled in mock relief. If he's dead, we're not doomed after all. Oh, I didn't say he was dead, just that he was murdered, and earthlings are certainly doomed if they're without him. Clint was growing impatient. Come on, who are you talking about, he demanded. I refer to the man who made your body and mine, the man who formed the entire earth and every molecule. His name is Jesus Christ. And so you have the hippie spaceman description of Jesus. Is it an accurate one? Yes, but it is definitely feels like something of its time. Definitely feels like one of those things where it's a it's a sermon illustration that's going out, you know, to hippies or whatever. One of the things, though, is he is doing some things with uh, science fiction ideas that that turn into theological ideas as well. And that is that everything that is matter is actually unfallen and everything that is antimatter is our universe. So we are antimatter. We would look at things and say, no, we are matter and everything outside of here is antimatter. But um, an alien is talking to him and the alien says, everything outside is antimatter. That is, everything in matter is ruled by the creatures of Aelor. We are privileged to share in his creativity by filling it with living beings and taming the uncharted regions. And in our ever-expanding universe, never will we come to an end of finding new worlds to conquer, new worlds to fill with people linked to Aelor and ruled by beings made by him. On the other hand, it seems to me that the enemy and all who follow him are by their very nature so corrupted that they eventually will not want the company of any other. Their selfishness drive them apart, for they are only good to one another as objects of exploitation. If one has no power over the other, he'll seek aloneness, and all the lusts and appetites they have will go unassuaged in their loneliness. If there are 100 billion stars, or suns, in antimatter, this means there will be more than enough celestial bodies for each damned being to have his own private hell. David looked at him sharply. You mean each one in a flaming sun thousands of degrees? Hell can't be that literal, can it? Oh, Pilu said. I have no idea. 
There would be planets around many of the suns, of course. Who knows? I'm simply pointing out that there's plenty of room in antimatter. Maybe, on the other hand, hell will be a small, compact place where evil spirits can taunt and torment each other, whether physically or mentally or emotionally, or both. Now, he continued, picture yourself on a staircase which reaches to infinity, both up and down. Each step represents a dimension. When we die, it is like moving up to another step, another dimension. Each contains totally different worlds and creatures we can visit at Eliar's pleasure. And of course, anything that is his pleasure becomes pleasure for us, for we really are part of him. But is the curse of antimatter in all dimensions, David asked, incredulous at the concepts? I don't know. The enemy, of course, can only go into two. And consider this, antimatter is constantly in a state of falling in upon itself. It will never, except for some cataclysm, seem smaller than those in it. But just as within a pinhead, you can have billions of worlds, molecules, atoms, protons, so in matter is antimatter, a tiny bubble becoming tinier and tinier. Eventually, I suppose, a person could swallow it without noticing. It will remain as large and hideous as ever here, but will be totally lost in Aelior's dimensions. So again, he's just kind of throwing out ideas, but I do like this kind of science fiction description of of heaven and of like these these different kind of realms that that exist. Uh, is it literal? Is it actual? Oh, no, I don't think so. But it does work uh, metaphorically, and that's why this book kind of works on a level of like the different pilgrimage that you see in different uh, allegorical literature, like the Pilgrim's Progress or the Great Divorce. Uh, there's just a lot more going on here. Uh, there's descriptions of unfallen worlds where he is kind of taking this idea. You have um, the unfallen aliens can't understand Earth. The unfallen worlds seem a little bit boring at first, but then he can't imagine living anywhere else. This book, as many big ideas as there are, like that hideous strength, is ultimately about conversion and about a marriage, and about two people who really have to uh, come to terms with who God is, and come to terms with who they are in their relationship with each other, and in their relationship with God. It spends more time with David than it does with his wife. Uh, in fact, his wife has very little to do, unlike that hideous strength where Jane has a lot to do, and Mark has a lot to do, and they're both kind of off in two different places. In here, they are off in two different places, but his place is by far the most interesting and is 95% of the book. So the question, is it worth reading? And I would answer with a yes, but it is a conditional yes for sure. First, is it worth reading as homework, as sci-fi homework, as Christian sci-fi homework? Well, as science fiction homework, no. I mean, there is some interesting things that are coming out of this that it's a book from 1969 that takes a look at aliens in 1969. Um, but as Christian science fiction homework, it is interesting. It is something that you could read and get a lot out of. This is one of those things where this is an early one. He's talking in his introduction about how there isn't much like this out there, if anything. And so he was doing that Tolkien-Lewis thing where we got out of the silent planet because of an agreement that Tolkien and Lewis had where they were going to go and write the books that they wanted to read. And so C.S. Lewis wrote Out of the Silent Planet and J.R.R. Tolkien didn't finish his. But that's what he's doing here is he's writing this book that he wants to see, that he's writing this book that he wants to read. And, and that's what I did when I finally wrote my science fiction novel here. I wrote the book that I wanted to read. So worth reading as homework. Yes, if you're into that kind of thing. Is it worth reading as a Christian novel? Uh, yes, but not nearly as strong as the homework answer. As a sci-fi novel, 
kind of, but if you're just reading this to get some good science fiction, um, I would definitely say you're, you're going to have a lot more enjoyment with other books. As Christian science fiction, then, you know, again, that yes answer kind of goes up a little bit higher in, in intensity, but um, yeah, th this is not for everyone and it's hard to find. I'm sure you can get a copy on eBay. Uh, I think there, there were some copies listed on, on Amazon. Uh, I don't know the pricing of them because I got this for free, so I didn't check the pricing. Uh, but there, you know, and also look for the title that twisted, uh, Escape from the Twisted Planet. Um, that's another title for the same book. I'm not sure if there's any differences. I don't know if they changed any of the language, the, maybe some of the outdated language for the 80s. I'm not sure, but yeah. So strong yes in the Christian science fiction homework sense. Weak yes in the just, if you just want to read for fun, there's a lot more things that I would say spend your time with. So speaking of spending time, I want to thank you for spending time with me. And I do want to say, if you liked this video, please like, please subscribe, please join us over at the podcast over at strangersandaliens.com. Find us anywhere. Just search for Strangers and Aliens in any of your podcast catchers, Spotify, Google Music, whatever it is. Um, obviously, not iTunes anymore, Apple Podcasts. And if you're listening to the podcast, please join us over on our YouTube page. Again, just search for Strangers and Aliens. You may have to search for Strangers and Aliens podcast, but we are over there as well. So with all that said, I also want to say thank you again for spending time with me. And I just want to wish you in all your travels and in whatever you do. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jason Neal. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com, where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter, where we are at Strange and Alien, or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-37-ALIEN. And once again, thanks for listening. Rock and roll is the evil.